International Media Ministries presents dramatic scriptwriting with award-winning screenwriter and director Bart Gavigan. Lesson 4. Time, Bloodline and Film Language. Maybe I should talk to you about flashback just briefly because Hollywood half knows the rules about it. It's like a distant memory, you know, they, they vaguely remember. Europe knows almost nothing about it because they know nothing about almost any rules, you know what I mean? Uh, and the result is that whenever you have flashback in a piece of work, usually you're in an educational process. You're having to explain structure to the people who are employing you. Okay? And I've been in this situation many, many times. Uh, in the last four years. And people are open to the explanation if you can explain it. In other words, if they actually understand you know structure, they're very trusting about it. If you don't know, then they won't allow you to do it. It's as simple as that. They'll probably blot it out. And the rule is basically very simple. The rule is that flashback must follow all the normal rules of story. It must have a beginning, a middle, and end. It must have a setup. It must have reversals. It must have a climax, and it must have a conclusion. What's the dramatic unities in the Greeks? I mean, what was the unity of place? You know, these are the unities of time and place and so on. Well, what's the an action? What's the unity of time, uh, of place? Well, the unity of place was actually in Greek theatre always took front of, place in front of the palace gates. You know what I mean? That's the unity. Of, that's the big deal they're all talking about. It's always the same, you know, or outside the city walls or whatever. And then you have a unity of time, which is usually this took place over a 24-hour period or within a 24-hour period, a unity of time. And there's a reason for that, which is, again, like the bloodline, uh, in film time, uh, the shorter the expanse of time, the more power you can get into your film. Uh, if something takes place over three years or 30 years, obviously there's a loosening of dramatic drive. If something takes place over three hours, there's a huge dramatic drive. If it takes place over three days, there's still a huge dramatic drive. If it takes place over 30 years, you best be a very good writer. Because you're not getting a natural bounce out of the drive. The length of your film should be just long enough so that the hero can go, th go through the cycle of either going from uh, being an utter success to utter failure or being an utter failure to utter success. So however long that takes to realistically happen, is the time of your story. But what the, the common wisdom around that has been, the more you can compress time, for the, the more your story can be compressed into chronological time, the better. What I would actually say to you is, if you need 30 years to tell your story, take 30 years. You just better be a good writer, that's all. And so, taking those unities of action, time, and place, Hollywood says to itself, well, the ideal is two hours for the action to take place inside two hours in real time. Uh, we'll live with it taking place within 24 hours, you know, or 48 hours, as the title of the film might be. 48 hours gives you an, a clue, or a weekend, or whatever. But what they worry about flashback is flashback has changed those continuities of time, place, and action. And suddenly, even though you're going backwards, suddenly now the film is spread over 30 years or it's spread over six years, or it's spread over five years, and you've gone into the past. 
And flashback is a distancing technique. In other words, the audience uh, are always distanced when you use flashback because they've been in a live situation and suddenly they're having to adjust. They're having to dramatically adjust to the past. And I, I'm struggling with producers right now on another script who basically want me to put in things like 1940, 1844. Or, and, and why I hate it, okay, why I hate it, is that it takes the audience out of the film. For having a brief moment, they're suddenly aware that this is not a film. Once you put those things in, they are aware of the artifice of filmmaking. Okay? They're not gripped by the throat. The whole essence of being a great writer, being a great filmmaker, is you grab the audience by the throat, and you don't let them go. And it gets worse. So, so in other words, uh, they are compelled to listen to your story, they're compelled to feel the emotions and have the experiences you want them to feel. They're compelled to look at the life the way you want them to look at it. And they just come out and collapse in a heap in the corridor because the experience has been so intense and so powerful. And if you start putting things in like Kenya, 1844, you know, it's, it's, what can one say? It's not dramatic, do you understand? Now, people do it all the time, but, but it's just rubbish, okay? Uh, uh, there must be another way to do it that's powerful. And it's based on this. It's always based on the assumption that the audience are idiots. We need to tell them. We've got to tell it three times. They've got to know that now we're in a flashback and it's now eight, I think. We see the young boy. He was an adult, now we see him again as a boy. I think they understand we're in a flashback here. I don't think we need to say 10 years earlier or 10 years later, do you see? Audiences are smart, smart, smart. Okay? What you have to do is facilitate how smart they are. So what I'm saying to you is, yes, you have to find the equivalent visually of that 10 years earlier, 10 years later. It's exactly like, um, how do you convey time? How do you convey that someone's been in a waiting room for three hours and they're angry? I mean, forgive me for saying this. One way of, of doing it is um, that, you know, they're, they're sort of tapping their foot. I mean, they've gone into spasm. And Another way is to see 25 cigarette dog ends in the cigarette thing, if, you, if it's that kind of character. You, you, can find, you have to find a visual way, okay, rather than actually spelling it out, rather than the voice saying, he's been waiting here for three hours, you know? This is a visual medium. Okay, the hero's ghost. Okay, so th this I'm saying is a very powerful tool, the hero's ghost. And it's a relationship, an event, a trauma, in the past, before the film begins, that's unresolved. So in a sense, it's like a bomb waiting to go off in the hero's life. And this bomb goes off in Rain Man, okay? So about 12 minutes in, he's driving in his car with his girlfriend and the phone rings. And what he learns is his father has died and left a will. And his father's very wealthy, okay? And what the ghost in this film is, is his father. His father's the ghost. His relationship with the father is going to be critical in terms of audience empathy. Because what we're going to learn is that his father has left $3 million to his autistic brother, and he's left him some roses. Oh, and a car, too. 
that he stole when he was 16 and uh, you know, drove without his dad's permission. So we, we're pretty clear about what the symbolism is here from his dad's point of view, yes? And however we, whatever we think about this guy up to this point, suddenly in terms of empathy, the audience shifts. What a rotten thing to do to your son. Whatever you think about this, this is not the way to relate. Whether it's right or wrong, I'm not talking about the money, I'm talking about the relationship and the statement that is made by this will. It's crystal clear to the audience, they get it, and they shift and their empathy moves towards this man, which it needs to do because he's about to kidnap his autistic brother and take him across America and demand half the money. So we need some empathy here. And so as a writer, you get the empathy, and how you get it is through the ghost, through the relationship with the ghost. And this relationship is a brilliant use of ghosts, because often people just use the ghost as a device. So they use it the way we've talked about Rain Man so far, where it occurs once, kicks off the relationship, um, and then they think, fine, we've done, it's done, it, done its work. And what happens in this film is the ghost keeps on being used to turn the film. So actually, through his autistic brother, he starts to learn more about the father, more about the father, the reason his father did things, more about the reason why his brother was sent away to this home, okay? And, and, and throughout the film, this father is used to turn the film, the ghost is used to turn the film. It's a very brilliant use of the ghost, where it's, it's not used just once, but several times in the film. Many films don't have such a thing as a ghost. It's, it's a powerful tool which you can use or not use. It's certainly not a necessity. It's a, it's a tool like everything else. In other words, when you look at your story, you say, here are all my options, here are possibilities. Uh, you would certainly think about a ghost, and then you would reject it or use it. You'd say, no. For, for this, it, it actually it, it maybe points my story in the wrong direction. It, uh, and all the time with your story, the, the, the big thing you're trying to work out is once you've established your hero and his want, you're trying to, in a sense, establish the story that needs to be told. Instead of trying to complicate your story, uh, which many people do because they think it's, it's a series of conflicts and so on, I would say the heart of storytelling is to find the story that's just saying, Tell me, tell me, because here's the story that needs to be told, because once you've set up this story, this is the only story that can be told. Now, that's not true. You can always tell stories many ways. But So I'd say, no, you, you don't have to have a ghost. You would think about it. The, the great terrible thing would be if you never thought about it, if you actually didn't know that was a possibility to open to you, a tool open to you. As I said, the, the reason it's called a ghost is because of Hamlet. Okay, his father's ghost, you remember, at the beginning of Hamlet. So it's just a term that comes from, from Hamlet, and it doesn't literally mean a ghost. It doesn't have to be even a person. It can be an event. Okay? It could be something. That's, it's out there waiting to explode in the hero's face, basically, when he least expects it. In Ordinary People, the ghost is his brother his dead brother, okay? And again, this is a brilliant use of ghost because it's not just used once, it's used progressively until the whole audience is desperate to know what actually happened out there on the water. What was so traumatic 
that it's ruined this boy's life. What happened with his brother? Okay, and why is this such a why is this such a divisive event in the family's life? Why, what, 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 what has happened here to him, his brother, and so on? So this is a superb use of ghost. Um, as I've mentioned, if you look at the films of Tom Cruise, there is nearly always a ghost in his films. And that ghost is his father in this case. It doesn't have to be, but in this case it's his father. It's, it's, in the industry, it's actually regarded as a cliché. They literally say things like, there's Tom pumping up his character again using a ghost. They say things like that, okay? And um, they're sort of right, yeah, it's a sort of cliché. And where they're absolutely wrong is they don't actually understand it's the most powerful cliché in the whole of story structure. So yes, it's a cliché, but no, it's the most powerful. And the reason is, is something very important I'm going to talk to you about is bloodline, okay? Bloodline. So bloodline is something the Greeks understood intimately. Uh, and it's to do with intimacy, actually. It's to do with kinship, friendship, above all, blood family. And the bloodline goes something like this. If your uncle dies, that's a sad event. If your brother dies, that's a tragedy. If your wife dies, that's a double tragedy. If your uncle betrays you, that's tragic. If your brother betrays you, that's a double tragedy. If your wife betrays you, if your son betrays you, do you start to understand the power of the bloodline? In other words, the bloodline is one of the most powerful things in story. All of us know the bloodline. See, I'm saying it and everyone's nodding. We actually understand instinctively bloodline, okay? We understand things like um, that there is a hierarchy in bloodline and your wife is not actually the, the, the matrix of the hierarchy. The most powerful thing in the bloodline is children, especially tiny children, okay? These are uh, explosive elements of the bloodline. And the bloodline is, is um, very, very linked to what I call intrinsic versus subjective drama. These are terms you probably won't bump into too often. But just as I've said that, yes, Tom Cruise having a ghost, usually his father, is an explosive device in the bloodline. It's a cliche, but explosive is precisely because the father is explosive on the bloodline. To have a parent on your, as your ghost is always explosive. It's very powerful in film. Okay. Because it's family. Because it's, uh, you know, as to be betrayed by your enemy is a terrible thing. To be betrayed by your ally or your friend is a much more terrible thing. This is the bloodline. And intrinsic versus subjective drama goes something like this. Uh, there are some situations in life that are intrinsically dramatic. They need no explanation. So if suddenly we all look up and my son, say there was a beam there, is crawling along that beam, that is an intrinsically dramatic situation. You don't need to know nothing about my son, who that little boy is. This is intrinsic drama. It always has power intrinsically. Okay? Most drama is powerful subjectively. 
It only has power when you know and care about the characters. When you empathize with them, when you care about them, then you start to have drama, subjective drama. Very little drama is intrinsically dramatic, okay? So we've seen craft, inspiration, perspiration. We've seen the debate about this form of craft. And above all, we've seen the place of the audience. The, um, the great thing you've got to remember is a film or a piece of theater. And by film, I mean anything. It can be three minutes long. It can be a slideshow. It does not happen out there. It doesn't happen on a screen. It happens inside the mind of your audience. It happens right here. And if it's not happening here, it's happening nowhere. If it's, happening, if it's just happening there, heaven forbid. And so many films fail because they just happen there. Okay? They don't happen here. So uh, Robert Bresson, uh, a very great film, a very, very underrated filmmaker because uh, for most of his career he used non-actors and he uh, had a very minimalist approach, you could say, to filmmaking. Uh, he said a wonderful thing in one of his writings on film. He said, it's the knots tying and untying inside your character that give film its true force, that give story its true velocity. Okay. Um, and it's the same because the audience actually are living that experience with the character. Uh, it's the knots tying and untying inside your audience's head that give your story power. So we've started to glimpse the importance of the audience, and that's the theme I'm going to come back to again and again. Uh, when I do masterclass workshops, I, it's an exhausting business because um, one of the things I have to do, and, and which more and more I ask people to do, is to actually break down their film into bullet headings of each scene. You know, what's this scene? What's the essence of this scene? And uh, so that you actually break down a film maybe into 160 scenes, of, if it's a very visual film, or 60 if it's a very talky film. Okay? And, and just bullet headings. And I just start to take people through those bullet headings. And what's a huge shock to them is about number eight, I say, what does the audience know now? Where are they living? What do they think? <coughs> and as soon as you ask those questions, it's totally obvious to everyone what the audience are thinking what they're feeling, where they're living, who they're, are they in the story, are they out of the story. It's real basic stuff, and people see it as soon as you ask the question. They get it straight away. But they never ask those questions when they're writing themselves. They don't care where the audience is. And your audience uh, is who you write for. Your reader is who you write for. And if you don't, then... Why are you writing? You're writing for yourself. As I say, all these story principles apply to every form of writing, but we're talking primarily about visual media this week. Uh, that's what I, I want to talk to you about. I, uh, we could spend a week talking about the novel, and maybe I'll touch on the differences between novel, theatre, uh, and film sometime during this week. There are key differences that you're to understand, so that, say, you were ever asked to adapt a novel or adapt a short story, what are the things you should look at? What are the problems you'll hit? What are the pluses? What are the minuses? They're fairly simple. Uh, 
I would love to spend time on things I'm not going to touch this week. I'll probably not talk to you much about film languages, um, except where it actually affects you as writers. So actually, most people don't know, but there are between 10 and 12 major film languages. Most directors, I would say, the number of directors in the world who know this are like 0.001%. So directors go crazy when you touch on this area in, say, a writing workshop or something. And, and one of the things I hope to do uh, probably over the next few years is start to hold directors' workshops in a consistent way to teach film languages, because people don't know this stuff. Even the great directors don't know it, and it's just a mess. But there's very little time to, to do that sort of thing. So I will teach you some of those basic languages in as far as you have to know them for writing, say. What I'll say now, and I'll come back to it later when we're discussing theatre, soap opera, um, not the novel, is that film is visual. And again, by film, I mean anything to do with visual media is visual. So the great rule is show, don't tell. Don't tell me about it, show me, you know? And this applies to everything. So uh, I was editing something recently, and um, one of my interns, I have a group of interns who come from around the world, and uh, usually they've been to film school and things like that, and they come to learn. They come to, it's like an atelier system in the Middle Ages where people come to learn. Uh, and I, I feel it a great privilege. They teach me. Uh, they teach me about what I'm talking to you now. So, for example, uh, these interns listen to my tapes. I was saying I just started to listen to my tapes. These interns know my tapes backwards. So they pick up a script of mine and they say, scene 66, this totally breaks all the rules, you know. Uh, or one of them was editing this film for me and said, but you do the introduction to the film and then you want to bring these very famous athletes into a stadium where they're jogging, they want to bring them to a stadium. And so what do you do? You show us the name of the stadium. Like you say, international stadium. They say that's an absolute no-no in film according to your own teaching. And they're right, they're right. What they're actually saying is show, don't tell. And, and like to actually put a name up is, is not showing. Do you see what I mean? It's better than sort of having a voice saying it, but not much better. And David Mamet has a great saying. He says, don't use signs in films unless they're not signs, unless they're alive, unless they're characters. Do you see? He's absolutely right. So this intern said, but what you should do is just show them running into the stadium. Then... You've shown it. And the power just from doing that simple little thing, you know, is, is mind-blowing. Instead of putting a full stop on something, you've continued the action and you've shown something. Okay. So the, the rule is show, don't tell. Okay. So this is a, a field where visual imagination rather than literary gift is more important. To have great literary gifts in the field of visual media is not very important, okay? This is rather shocking because all of us educationally are uh, educated in a literary system, are we not? I was. I wasn't taught film, I was taught literature. Were you? Were you taught film? 
course not. Uh, we've been brought up on literature, okay? And literature, literary gifts, are as nothing in this world I'm talking about a visual media. You know, go to the back of the class if you have literary gifts. <laughs> not great. Um, because show, don't tell is where it is. Um, what it means is that the power of your film will be communicated through the visual. Okay? That's where the power will lie. Okay? It doesn't mean to say you don't have to have brilliant dialogue and great scene descriptions if you're writing some, but I'll come to those in a minute, what the rules are about those. So visual imagination is a priority, and yet visual imagination is as nothing, again, compared to structure. Okay? So if we're in Hollywood and you have a great visual imagination, as far as they're concerned, you're still only a body and fender writer. You only become a great writer when you can handle structure. Because this art form is about structure. It's not primarily about visual imagination, even though it's all about the visual. Do you see what I mean? Mastering the visual. Even that is totally the servant of serving structure. Okay, I just want to stress this, because I can't stress enough that what this form is all about is architecture, logic, structure. And, and if, for example, you wrote a great script that was brilliant structurally, but very poor at the visual level, all they would do in Hollywood is hire someone in to give it strong visual imagine, to give it strong visuals. And that person wouldn't be highly regarded particularly. Be just, uh, they'd be more regarded than someone who actually writes dialogue, say. How do you think about dialogue? Where does dialogue come in? Um, my advice to you would be to write dialogue at the end. Why would that be so? Is there a reason for that? Is that just caprice? Is that arbitrary? I, I would argue not. Uh, the reason I would say you should do it then is once you know who your characters are, once you know what a character wants, what they fear, what they hope, what they're feeling in a scene, once you know what every character in that scene wants, what they're feeling, to write dialogue is a piece of cake. You could probably write the dialogue of a whole film in two weeks maximum, probably less, a week. You know? Great dialogue. I mean, dialogue that people think is wonderful. And why is that? Because it's actually coming out of your characters. You actually know who they are, and therefore you know their unique voice. You know what they want, you know how they speak, you know their backstory, you know where they're coming from. So to actually write dialogue is not difficult. No big deal. What's difficult is to know who your characters are. What's difficult is to actually weave that into a spiraling story of conflict and failure, resolution, you know, you know to swing the story around. That's what's difficult. Um, if someone comes to me and says, well, Bob, what often happens is I, um, I start writing and I get this wonderful scene full of dialogue, you know, wonderful lines and so on. What do I do about that? And I say, fine. I, uh, am I your keeper? You know, so, uh, it's no problem. If you want to put that in, put it down and so on. Just understand this, that when you actually know what your story's about and who your characters are, you're going to have to rewrite it all, okay? Just as long as you know that, then go ahead and write it. Who, who, who am I to stop you? Okay? Whatever suits your style of writing, do. In other words, some people can sit down and be very formal about structure. They can actually take the rules of structure and uh, map out a story, uh, slightly like those people in exams who can 
actually put down the five salient points they're going to write about and then write about them. Other people couldn't do that to save their life. I know one writer who puts on a, a famous writer who puts on a record, plays it for three weeks, the same record, and writes. That's how he writes. Uh, yeah, it's true. Locks himself in a room, writes a screenplay in about three weeks that finally he's been working for, and he just plays the same record over and over again. Okay, if that works for him, fine. All I'm saying is that you're going to write and rewrite, and sooner or later, structure's going to come into this. It doesn't have to come in at the beginning. If you feel it cramps your style for it to come in at the beginning, don't have it come in at the beginning. Have it come in at the end or the middle. If it helps you at the beginning, have it come in at the beginning. Just understand it's going to come into it. And if you don't bring it into it, someone else is. Okay? And if they don't, alas for you, the, person who, the people who are going to bring it in are the audience. And they're going to say, okay, thumbs down. We didn't like that at all. It didn't touch us, move us, meant nothing to us. Okay, so at the end. The danger being, of course, that you fall in love with words, that you fall in love with these scenes. And you don't want to take them out, even though they don't progress your story, even though they don't develop your characters. You just love this comic scene, which is brilliant. Brilliant in its own right, but is the first thing that goes if it gets in the way of story, or gets in the way of the character's arc or line, and so on. And finally, in the visual media, uh, Words should be economical, simple, no poetry, heaven forbid. In other words, words are functional in this media. It doesn't mean to say you can't give someone a beautiful line or a poetic line. If that truly is in their character, or if it's truly not in their character and actually says to your audience, look how this person has changed, or look, this person is struggling to say something here that they've never said before. Okay? So if you start to use poetry in film, there better be a good reason. Because your dialogue should be economic, gritty, of life. Uh, and remember, everything in this media is a metaphor, including your dialogue. So people should not be speaking how they speak in life. What does that mean? It means that if I was to actually do a scene where everyone spoke in life, it would run 15 minutes instead of three minutes because we repeat ourselves, we don't finish sentences. Now, I have no objection to that in a film. I'm just saying that film is not about life. It's a metaphor. Even documentary is only a metaphor. Please remember that. Please remember documentary is only a metaphor. We switch on the camera, we switch it off, we point the camera. All these things are selective. All these things actually take life and dramatize it. For example, when you write film description, um, you will never use generics like, uh, what? He walked across the room. No, he stumbles, he runs. He, whatever. In other words, you'll never use a generic like walked means nothing. He strolls. You'll actually be visual in your descriptions. You see what I mean? You'll be precise. As precise as comedians are. Comedians are probably the most precise people in all the arts forms in terms of their language. For um, the comedian, words are funny. Some words are funny. Did you know that? They're intrinsically funny. 